Hey, good morning, faith family. It's good to see you. Who's ready for some more Ecclesiastes? You ready? You're getting that whether you're ready or not. So uh, if you're turning your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, while you're turning there, let me say hello to our Lakeville campus. Just a a quick word. I was there early this morning, and I just want to say what an awesome volunteer team we have getting up in the morning, setting up for the Lakeville campus. So proud of you guys, and we're so thankful uh, that you're gathered there this morning to worship Jesus. Also want to say hello to those in our venue as well. Brian is scattered everywhere because we want to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. This morning we continue in our series called The Search. We're looking through this great book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, and we're starting to get to know this guy named Koheleth, right? Like him or not. Uh, And you say, well, Koheleth, I don't even see that in the Bible. Well, uh, the English phrase, the preacher, is the translation of the Hebrew name Koheleth. And uh, we're following his journey. He's a very honest man, uh, takes a very rational look at life in a fallen world, and he's doing what we all try to do, and that's make sense out of it. To, to try to find meaning in life, in a, in a life that doesn't always make sense. And he's tried knowledge. We've looked at that. He's thought, if I could get enough knowledge, that would answer all life's questions. But he says, it is vanity. That's like his favorite word. It's meaningless. And then we saw last week, he tries pleasure. And so he just says, if it feels good, I'll do it. I'll live for anything. There's no rules whatsoever. And he says, yeah, but that ends up empty and meaningless. Well, whether you like Koheleth or not, you got to give him this. He's not a quitter, right? He's not about to give up because finding meaning matters. And so this morning we pick back up in his search here in chapter two, beginning at verse four. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's word. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter two and verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools in which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house. And I had also great possessions in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I had singers, men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's Word. Pray for me and pray with me now. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken truth to us, a truth that is so relevant for everyday life. And I pray that you would meet us here this morning. Holy Spirit, come and set us free. Our hearts are longing to make sense out of life and to find meaning in life. Guide us supernaturally 
to where hope is found, where meaning is found, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Even though it's uh, 75 years old, in fact, I think it's 75 years old this year, it is still considered by most movie experts one of the, if not the, greatest movie ever made. Even to today, it is heralded as a masterpiece in film. And the movie that I'm referring to is the Orson Welles classic, Citizen Kane. Uh, many of you have probably seen that. It may be before some of your time, but it's still it's a classic film. It's a story about a man by the name of Charles Foster Kane. And um, he grew up with a very happy childhood. Even though his family growing up was very poor. But all that changes when Charles receives an enormous amount of wealth. Enough that enables him to achieve anything he wants in life. He is able to accomplish anything at all. And that's what he does. He gains fame. He gains uh, popularity. He gains influence. He builds this enormous estate. Like this mansion where people are waiting on him every single day. He has everything you could possibly want. He has, in human terms, the good life. Life at the top. But for Charles, it wasn't enough. And this gets seen throughout the movie in this image of a fireplace that just keeps burning brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter because there's an emptiness inside. There's this desire for more. He just cannot get enough until finally the weight of that one day comes crashing down on him. This is one of the famous scenes in the movie where Charles literally self-destructs. He loses it all. Get this image in your mind. Here is a man who looks at everything he's gained. He looks at everything he's accomplished. He looks at everything he's achieved in life. And he throws it all away. Why? Because he can't stand the emptiness inside anymore. It is literally driving him mad. This is a man whose life is falling apart. Get this image. A man who has everything, and yet everything he has doesn't satisfy him. And then he comes across this glass globe, this glass ball. Anybody remember what it's called? Rosebud. And he looks in this glass ball and notice when he looks in it, it reminds him of his childhood. And it reminds him of the happiness he no longer has. It reminds him of the peace that has gone away. Look at that image. Do you have that image in your mind? A man who has everything and yet everything he has doesn't give him peace in life. I want you to get that image in your mind because that's exactly the image of our text this morning. That's exactly what we're going to see. And I would submit to you that this issue of achievement, this issue of accomplishment, this issue of success, of living life at the top is maybe one of the biggest idols of our culture. 
You know, I got some great feedback from last week on the topic of pleasure, like, oh my goodness, how real life that is and how real to our culture. I would submit to you that the issue of achievement and accomplishment is even more so for our lives, our hearts, and the culture in which we live. Take, for instance, all the symbols of achievement that we see in our culture, right? I mean, we have awards and, and, and report cards and certificates. We have a book of world records. And most of these world records are like totally meaningless. Like, who can drink the most milkshakes through their nose? That's disgusting, right? There's a record for who has the most yard gnomes. Who cares, right? There's a record in here of the most marriages. There's a lady in Indiana who broke the world record for 23 marriages. Now listen, when you get to about 20, you might want to conclude the problem's you, right? I mean, that's the only common denominator here, right? But we keep, we keep records of everything. Uh, we have uh, crowns that we give away. Oh, one of the biggest ones in our culture is the resume, right? What does the resume do? The resume lists out all your accomplishments, everything that you've achieved, all the awards that you have, all the education you've obtained, all the success you have in your career. You see, we live in a culture where you're defined by this. What you do, what's on your resume determines who you are. Or, or maybe the biggest one is the trophy. I mean, isn't everybody after the trophy, sports trophies? Uh, music awards, movie awards. What's the point? Achievement is the alcohol of our lives. It's addictive. And when you get a little bit of it, you want a little bit more of it. And you want a whole case of trophies. You, you want a resume that is spotless. Our culture, one of the idols of our culture is this makes who you are. It will provide meaning in life and it will solve answers in your life. And that's exactly what Koheleth tries. I want to show you in the text his resume. Can I do that? I kind of already have because we just read it, right? Coeleth lays out here all the things that he's accomplished. I just want to walk through the text and show you how big, how awesome his resume is. Start at verse 4. He lists out his property. I made great works and I built houses. Now, houses, plural, meaning he has the beach house, He's got the cabin up north, of course, right? Who doesn't? He's got the Beverly Hills mansion. If his life were a game of Monopoly, he has hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place and owns all the railroads, right? There's not a, a place on the board you can go that he doesn't own. And, and aren't houses in many cultures a symbol of status? How big your house is, what neighborhood your home is in, how many homes, how much property do you own? Now, Coelith is a parallel to Solomon. Solomon's home took 13 years to build with a construction crew of 153,000 workers. It was pretty big. You see, the truth is, in that day and in our day, property, possessions of, of homes really are a status Symbol of success. 
That's not all that's on his resume. Look at also his, his paradise. Keep reading. He says, He planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Translation in today, he's got the hot tub. <laughs> he's got swimming pools. He's got, he's got uh, the garden paradise. In fact, most scholars think this is reference to Garden of Eden type language. What's he saying? Not only do I have a lot of property, but I have the perfect situation. I've got the most peaceful surrounding you could possibly have. Look also thirdly at his possessions, picking up in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Two things out of this. The first is his possessions. Right? He says, I have cattle. Now, that may not be all that impressive to you. Most of us don't go bragging about our herds and livestock. I have nine dogs, like big deal. Nobody cares. But in the ancient Near East, cattle was a sign of what? Wealth. Do you remember the phrase in the Bible, God is the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills? It's just a sign about the fact that God owns everything. Uh, it's a wealth uh, sign. He also has gold and silver. Remember, this is a par- parallel to Solomon. Do you know what Solomon's annual income was? If you translate it into our culture, it is $800 million a year. I could live on that. You think you could get by with that? $800 million a year. He has all the possessions you could possibly want. And then here's the last one, is his people, that is his servants. He has people that actually wait on him. He has had servants for so long that their children are either even born in his house, as the text says. He has trophy wives. Now you say, you shouldn't use that kind of phraseology because that's, that's, that's inappropriate. No, I actually mean it literally. Listen, do you know how kings acquired people? Through conquering lands. Do you know why he has all these wives? Why he has all these concubines? Why he has all these servants? It's because he's a successful king. He's conquered so many lands. He has so much in his possession that he has acquired people as a result of it. What's the point of the text? He's saying, I have everything. I have life at the top. There is not anything in terms of accomplishments that you could seek to get that I don't already have. And you say, bragger. Is he just trying to show off? No, I want to show you the trend in the text to make the point that I believe Coelith is making. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. This was regarding wisdom. Look at what he says. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Now here's the phrase. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. What's he saying? There was no one that's ever been that was smarter than I am. When I pursued wisdom, I gained enough that nobody could surpass me. Now look at chapter 2, verse 10. This was about pleasure last week. Chapter, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 10 says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Notice the phrase, I kept my heart 
from no pleasure. In other words, there's absolutely nothing in which I did not try. Anything that was pleasurable, I enjoyed it. Now look at his conclusion from Achievements, chapter 2, verse 9, and then we'll make the point. So I became great. Is he bragging? And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. In other words, nobody has achieved more than me. When it comes to knowledge, nobody can top me. When it comes to pleasure, nobody's experienced more. When it comes to accomplishment, nobody has the resume I have. What's the point? It's not bragging, it's this. Are you ready? Right here. If meaning can be found in these things, no one's more qualified than me. That's the point. Because don't take this out of the framework of the book, which I gave you in week one. A father is trying to teach his son wisdom. How? By pointing to a person who has acquired the highest level of achievement as if to say, if you can find meaning in achievement, his resume is the best. He is the most qualified person because your resume will never be as good as his resume. Do you see? Now, let me stop for just a moment and say it would be easy at this point, now that we understand the text, to say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Uh, there's no way I'm going to achieve all of this. I mean, just, I'm curious, show of hands, how many of you like have servants, male and female servants at your home? Your kids don't count, by the way, all right? Okay, nobody. How many of you, just curious, show of hands, make uh, $800 million a year? Like, that's just a little bit more than worship pastors make. All right, it's just above worship pastors. None of us are anywhere close to that, right? How many of you have conquered lands recently? Anybody like you conquered your entire subdivision and now you own it all and you absorbed all those families now under your rule and reign? Anybody? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. So it would be easy for us to say, yeah, this is like way back then. It doesn't apply to me now. Not so fast. Not so fast. Because what I've tried to show you each week is we do in small ways what Coelith has done in big ways. Here's what I mean. You and I, more than we realize, seek accomplishments and success to provide meaning. Let me give you just four quick application points as to how we do the exact same thing. Here's the first reason. It's this. The need for domination. There are some of you, and I'm not going to point at you, who can't stand losing. Anybody in here competitive? Right? I mean, what do we say in America? That second place is the first loser. What? You're in second place and what are you? Loser. Who wants the silver medal? You're a loser if you get a silver. The only thing that matters is the gold, right? We can't stand losing. Whether it is academics or sports or sports or sports <laughs> or our company's success, our identity, more than we realize, is wrapped up in winning. Now, please give me just a moment to say, I am not trying to be political, but I can't pass up an obvious example in the culture. So put all the politics aside, and I just simply want to point out this. If you've heard the message from Donald Trump, one of the messages has been this. We're going to win, and we're going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning. 
Now, again, I'm not, forget all the politics. I'm just simply saying, why do leaders say that? Because it resonates with so many people. Why? Because we want to win. We want to be on top. We can't even stomach the idea that we wouldn't be in first place. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Oh, I'm having fun. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil, that is all work, and all skill in work, all that we do, comes from what? This is so insightful. A man's envy of his neighbor. i got to be better than my neighbor. My company's got to be better than your company. My church has to be bigger than your church. My resume has to be better than your resume. The drive so often to succeed is nothing more than the desire to win. Why? Because winning is an identity. Did anybody know people that always have to one-up you in conversation? Like anybody know someone like this? Last week we left off with Bob. Bob, you were talking about some of the anger issues you were having with your neighbor. Yeah, it is getting worse. Uh, last night he was playing the drums until one in the morning and I found myself getting really angry and standing in my hallway holding a golf club ready to just... I got really angry at my neighbor too once. I was standing in a really big hallway and I was holding a golf cart. <laughs> Tiger Woods was sitting in it. He told me I was pretty and he's at my house right now. He's cleaning. I'm sorry, Penelope? Um, we don't allow crosstalk at this meeting. Thank you. Go ahead, Bob. Thank you, Dr. Hamill. Yes, thank you, Dr. Hamill. <laughs> Thanks to all the doctors in the world. Oh, Dr. Hamill. I'm finding her very distracting. Yeah, I really think I want to punch her in the face. <laughs> all right, everyone, let's just take a deep breath. I already took two breaths, too. Uh, I can breathe so deep that I can move furniture with my breath, so I rearrange my whole house that way. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's try to get back on track. Um, Sam? You okay? Dr. Hamill, I'm feeling really anxious. I just, I need some air. I need to go outside. I think, oh. actually, I'm sorry. I think I'm having a panic attack. I'm having a panic attack, too. <laughs> My panic attack's having a panic attack. It's called a panic panic attack. It's worse. <laughs> now, why is that so funny? It's funny because we all know somebody like that, right? I went on a mission trip. I've been on five mission trips. Right? You remember the old old uh, Brian Regan? I had two wisdom teeth pulled. Well, I had seven. You don't even have seven wisdom teeth, right? I mean, we're always we always feel like if I can make sure you're here and I'm here, then I know I matter. I have to feel like I'm a winner, and all that is is saying success is one of the ways I find meaning for my life. It's not just domination, but number two, it's the need for recognition. We want to be recognized. Oh, well, there'll be people who'll be modest and say they don't, but all of us have had that experience where we didn't get recognized for something we felt we should have been. We don't get the recognition we deserve from our family. We don't get the recognition we deserve from our church. They don't recognize us the way they ought to at our job because recognition can give us a sense of, listen, significance. 
Number three is the need for inclusion. The need for inclusion. That is, we want acceptance. We want acceptance from a certain group. We want respect from our colleagues. We want a degree from a certain school. This is what C.S. Lewis called, and I love this phrase, he called it the fear of the outsider. The fear of the outsider. We're so afraid we're going to be on the outside of whatever group gives us a sense of status that we long for. Do you know the driving reason why Facebook was even founded? If you watch the movie Social Network, at the beginning of the movie, here's what it says. The founders of Facebook, quote, why was Facebook started? I needed to do something substantial to get the acceptance of the clubs at Harvard. Why? Because they are exclusive and fun and lead to a better life. Acceptance, approval, forms identity. And here's the last one. The need for a contribution. The need for a contribution. We want to make a difference. We live so that at the end of our our life, we'll say, I lived a good life. I contributed to society. I contributed to art, to music, to theology. I contributed in some way. Here's a big one. Some of you I know with the hundreds, thousands of people that will literally come this weekend, here's what I know. Some of you are struggling with a life that never lived up to your sibling. Some of you are struggling with a life that never lived up to the expectations your parents had for you, and it has crushed you. Why? Because you've never felt like you've been good enough. But if you'd have been good enough, if you'd have been a doctor like they were, oh, if you'd have had the resume like they had, if you were as successful as an athlete as they were, then you would have mattered. But because you couldn't contribute, because you didn't have that skill, all of a sudden you were crushed under the weight of those expectations. Probably one of the greatest examples of this in, in Saving Private Ryan where this soldier gets rescued by four other soldiers who lose their life. And later on, at the end of this person's life, he comes back to their grave. He comes back to the grave. And listen as he's staring at this grave. Listen to what he says. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller.
Isn't that profound? What's he asking? Would you validate my life? I have to know that at the end of the day, how I've listened to my language, how I've lived has justified my existence. I have to know that the contribution I made as a parent mattered. Because if I don't, if I think that somehow I didn't succeed, then what was the point? What I'm saying, faith family, is this. Look at me. Sure, you don't have the property Coelho had. You don't have the paradise that he built. You haven't obtained all on his resume that he has. But here's what I know of your heart and mine. You're seeking something so that you can say, verse 9, I became great. Great parent. Great employee, great athlete, great pastor. There's something that our heart is clinging to to say, I've accomplished this and therefore I matter. This is what Coelith does. And what is his conclusion after he has pursued everything you could possibly accomplish? He is Citizen Kane on steroids. He has everything you could possibly want. And he says, it is vanity. It too is meaningless. And here's what he's going to tell you this morning. There's two reasons why accomplishments never accomplish a thing. Two reasons why accomplishments never accomplish a thing. It's why it's vanity. Number one is this, because you'll always be frustrated. If you live, right here, faith family, if you live for achievement, if this is what you live for, if this is how you find meaning in life, You're always going to be frustrated. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 7, and you'll see it on the screen. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. Now notice this next phrase. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. The eyes... The the, the fireplace keeps burning brighter and brighter and brighter. The eyes are never satisfied because what happens? You get the trophy and you want another one. You see, here's what's going to happen to you. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're either going to get everything you hope to achieve and realize it doesn't fulfill you, or you're never going to achieve what your heart so desperately wanted. You're either never going to get the trophy and be crushed, or you're going to get the trophy and you're going to say, eh, what now? Do you know how I know that? Don't take my word for it. Listen to Tom Brady. Yeah, that Tom Brady. New England Patriots. Eh, Tom Brady, right? <laughs> Listen to what Tom Brady did a 60 minutes interview. This man who has won Super Bowls, Super Bowl MVP, four time Pro Bowl, male athlete of the year, dated supermodels, makes millions. Here's what he said quote, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings, this was before the fourth, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then the interviewer asked Tom Brady this, so then what's the answer? And Tom Brady, who has more awards than you ever have, said, quote, I wish I knew. 
Don't take my word for it. Please don't take those who are at the top's word for it that you'll be frustrated because even if you get what your heart desperately wanted, you're going to find out it leaves you wanting more. Shia LaBeouf, the famous actor, Transformers, Indiana Jones, Fury, Wall Street 2. Listen to what he said in an interview. It is like, like ripped out of Ecclesiastes. Quote, sometimes I feel like I'm living a meaningless life. Is your middle name Coelith? I'm just curious, right? Listen, he says, I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America right now. I have a great house. My parents don't have to work. I've got money. I'm famous. But I have no idea where this insecurity comes from. Because it's like a God-sized hole. Are you kidding me? Like, did you really just say that? Maybe that's your answer, right? (laughs) If it's a God-sized hole, I don't know, maybe only God will fill it. Anyways. If I knew, I'd fill it and be on my way. Take it from those at the top who say you're going to be frustrated because you're either never going to be the movie star or you're going to be the movie star and wonder what's next. The eyes are never satisfied with riches. Here's the second reason achievement doesn't achieve a thing, according to Coelith, is not only will you always be frustrated, but you'll always be fighting. You'll always be fighting. Go back to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11, there's a word I want to emphasize. Then I considered, notice this phrase, all that my hands had done. So his resume, all that he's accomplished. And the toil I had expended in doing it, all the energy, all the blood, sweat, and tears that he's put into it. And behold, all was vanity. And here's the word, a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, why is it vanity? Why is all the works of my hands, all that I have done, all the energy that I put into it, why is that vanity? Because it's like striving after wind. It's it's a constant fight. It's a constant chase. Here's what he's saying, all right? Come in here close for a minute. Ready? Here it is. Here's what he's saying. You're either going to fight to get to the top or you're going to fight to stay at the top. Because once you get to the top, do you know what you're going to say? You're going to say what every prisoner has said when they've come out of prison. I ain't ever going back there. I ain't ever going back to that income level. I'm never going back to that level of an organization. I'm never going back to irrelevance. So you're going to fight all the way to get there. And if you get there, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But if you get there, you're going to have to fight to stay there. So it's always a striving always a striving. There is never any peace to be found in chasing after accomplishment to make sense out of your life. That's what Coelho says. Don't believe me? Listen to Madonna. Who would have thought you'd heard Madonna quoted in church? Well, you're about to. Oh, this is so good. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that always pushes me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably 
never will. What's she saying? Striving after wind. Prove you're somebody, and then you're going to have to keep proving you're somebody. So, here's the text. Here's what the text says. Coeleth searches after accomplishments. He lays out his resume. I am great. Look at all I've done. But it is vanity because either you're always going to be frustrated or you're always going to be fighting. So, meaningless. What do you say? And I've been asking you this every week because this is what you're asking and this is what people outside this room, out in our culture, it's what they're asking. So what are you going to say? Do you have an answer? Here's my answer. You ready? You will not find meaning except in accomplishments. What did he just say? Let me say it clearly. There is no meaning in life apart from achievement. Here's what I mean. Philippians 3. And we close with this. Philippians 3. As you're turning there, here's the context of which Paul is about to say what he's going to say. He's writing about the Judaizers. Now now look at me for just a moment. The Judaizers were saying this. Your status before God is all about what you've accomplished. Look at me. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Woohoo! Look at me. I've been circumcised. Look at me. I've obeyed the law. Look at all that I've done. I matter before God. I'm great before God. My status is excellent before God because of what? What I've done. And Paul writes this, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, that is what I've done. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at me, here's what he's saying. He's saying the exact same thing Coelith is saying. Do you want to compare resumes? Okay. Do you want to talk about what you've done? Do you want to talk about your status before God? Well, here's my resume and see if yours matches up. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Checkmate. You see, your resume can't match to my resume. He's doing the same thing Coelith is doing in Ecclesiastes 2. He's saying, if you're going to talk about accomplishment, gaining you status before God, ain't nobody more qualified than me. Because look at all I've done. And then notice what he says. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Now here's the big phrase. Not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but what? 
A righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I got to have everybody's attention right here. Do you know what Paul has just said? Meaning is found in accomplishments, just not yours. Meaning is found in achievement. Just not yours. Meaning is found in success. It's just not your success. Meaning is found in, could we use the word righteousness? It's just not your righteousness. It's the one he's given to you by faith in Jesus Christ. The problem's not accomplishment. The problem's the source. You know, the beautiful doctrine of imputation, to use that big theological word, here's the doctrine of imputation, which is at the heart of the gospel in a simple, understandable way. God has taken your pathetic resume and given you the resume of Jesus Christ, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. But you go ahead and define yourself by your company's success. You go ahead and define yourself by how many trophies you have. I got news for you. You're never going to out-accomplish the cross. You're never going to out-accomplish the cross. So how about you stop living for your, your resume and simply receive his resume, and in that you'll be great. Not because you're great, but because his greatness has been given to you. That's your identity, and that will set you free. That will set you free. See, Ecclesiastes, if you go back and read it, chapter 2, it's what? I built for myself. I, 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 I. Me, 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 me. What does Paul say? That's rubbish. I've lived that. I've gained that. I have that. And I'd lose it all to simply say, in Christ is all I need. Is that not the best news in the entire world? The good news of the gospel is this, folks. Jesus has accomplished everything we need. And if we will see our accomplishments as loss, then we will find meaning. Then and only then will we find meaning because you can't out-accomplish the cross. Why would you even try when Jesus offers freely a resume of no condemnation if you will simply believe? Now, I don't have long to say this. I'll just say it quickly in passing. Do you know how the last couple weeks I've said, when you understand that wisdom is about Jesus... It actually doesn't say, well, then I don't want to know anymore. It actually stirs you on to want to know more because you want to worship him through knowledge. When you understand that Jesus is the party and all pleasure is about him, that in his hands are pleasures forevermore, you don't want to stop pursuing pleasure. You want to pursue real pleasure. Here's my point. I'll make it quickly. Are you listening? Isn't it interesting that the same man, the Apostle Paul, who says, I consider all that I've done rubbish, also says this, I labored more than them all. 
yet not I, the grace of God in me. What's the point? When you're resting in the accomplishment of Christ, you're actually free to pursue accomplishment, not to be your God, but to simply worship God as a steward of all the talent He's given you. So you can run hard as an athlete and gain the trophy to the glory of God. Because you didn't need the trophy to be somebody. You're already somebody in Jesus. The trophy was just a stewardship that God made you fast. The trophy is just the stewardship that God made you smart in the area of finances. You're simply taking those gifts and using them back in terms of accomplishment to the glory of God. Not to be your God. Is that freeing? That's freeing. So it's not that accomplishment is the bad thing. It's that when you're living for accomplishment to define your identity, it will always frustrate you. I end with this. When Citizen Kane, when the movie came to an end, he's died, and they've all gathered around, and they're, um, they're talking about his life. And listen to what they say. Quote, Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and lost it. Rosebud was either something he couldn't get or something he lost. It was a piece in a jigsaw puzzle, a missing piece. Some of you have a God-sized hole in your heart that can only be filled by God. And it's a very sad thing when people like Koheleth, like Citizen Kane, like so many people in our culture who have everything and yet they have nothing. Look at me. Jesus invites you today to stop trying to be somebody and receive the identity of someone. He invites you to stop trying to obtain a certain life and simply receive abundant life. And you say, how do I do that? Here's how you do that. To quote that great old hymn, my trophies, at last, I lay down and exchange them today for a crown. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Some of you are here this morning and you need to be broken. You need to come to a place of repentance because you're looking to your accomplishments to define your life. And the good news of the Gospel proclaimed today is in Jesus, in Jesus alone, He is enough. He is sufficient. Would you trust in Him? Would you trust by faith in His righteousness accounted to you? And that that would be your identity regardless of how good your resume is or how bad your resume is. That you would rest in the cross. That's my prayer, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.